while you're making your way back to your seats, uh, an announcement that we forgot about. We, we are going to have a Jewish-Christian Seder dinner again this year, the first week of April. Jews for Jesus uh, representative Ruth Rosen, daughter of Moish Rosen, will be coming uh, to lead us in the Seder dinner. It's beautiful. You see Jesus in the Passover. It's awesome. We'll be eating together, which is even more awesome. All the good uh, Seder dinner, traditional foods. It's awesome. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, where we have been studying in our verse-to-verse, chapter-by-chapter exposition of the Gospel of Luke. We always pick up where we left off the week before. Now, Father, as we make our way to these holy and sacred scriptures that depict the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do so, Lord, with a sacred a trembling of soul. God the Son on the cross of wood that he himself created, dying a w- willingly, laying down his life for the sins of the world. He who knew no sin, had never committed a sin, no impure thoughts, all of our sins laid upon him. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him. By his flogging, we are made whole. So thank you, Father God, for the depiction we're about to reflect upon. We pray that we do so uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts through faith. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a masterpiece painting done by a famous artist during the Renaissance era, artist named Gerard David. He did a painting called The Deposition. It hangs in New York. The painting dramatically portrays Jesus' lifeless body being taken down off of the cross that Friday afternoon. We call Good Friday, Good Friday for us in the world. Bad Friday for Jesus. That painting is the subject of our text for consideration, the burial and preparation for the resurrection of his body. The central characters are there in the painting from our text. Joseph of Arimathea, by the way, Arimathea is uh, uh, linked to modern-day city called Rentis, R-E-N-T-I-S, North Jerusalem there. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and some of the faithful women who were following our Lord. They're in the painting. The mood is very uh, somber, as you would think. Uh, Joseph on a ladder, taking down the body, battered and bruised and bloodied body of Jesus our Lord. Dark and gloomy clouds, tear-stained faces, expressions of grief on everybody's face. Now, upon closer examination, as a commentator, Riken, has pointed out, there's a subtle object in this masterpiece, this painting, and it's added in the background. You can barely see it 
at first glance. But in the background, upon a green hill in the distance, is a windmill. Now, there were no windmills in Jerusalem in A.D. 33. Gerard David was making a statement. Jesus' death has a timeless relevance for every human soul. The crucifixion actually happens in the same world we live in. Now, for him, it was a world that included windmills that dotted his native Netherlands. For you and me, it's a world with high-speed internet, roaring jets overhead, skyscrapers across the skyline of a city. No matter who you are, when you were born, where you were born, in all of human history, the death of God's Son, God the Son, for you, it was for you and took place in your world. It's a timeless fact every soul must come to terms with, one way or another. There's no excuse, in other words, to say, oh, it, was, uh, it wasn't on this continent and it wasn't in this millennium. From God's perspective, it happened in your world, the world in which you were born, same world. It happened, and it's just as relevant to you and pressing of a matter for you to grapple with as if it happened in your backyard yesterday. The Holy Spirit of God will bring that fact and its relevance and its significance to every human soul. No matter when or where you were born. Now the word of God constantly brings us back to consider these timeless truths. Because they're the foundation of our Christian hope in life. God the son on that cross. Bearing the sins of the world. Opening a way for you and me to live forever with God. Now the context where we're going to pick up here in Luke 23 Jesus, the self-confessed God and Savior, has been crucified. We saw that last week. He's laid down his life to bear the sins of the world. Hebrews 9.28 put it this way. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Last week, as we saw... We considered the three miracles associated with the crucifixion. One, the sun stopped shining. From 12 to 3, there was no eclipse. The sun went out. God was making a statement. This is important. Pay attention. Don't miss this. The sins of the world were being judged on God the Son. It was a dark day. Second miracle we talked about last week, the curtain in the holy place was torn from top to bottom. The separator between holy God and unholy man was torn open, signifying this, Jesus' payment on the cross for your sins. When he yells out, it is finished, paid in full, the veil is torn, saying you can come in now through your connection with the sin bearer. You cannot just anybody come in. But if you have a connection to the one who paid your debt and he's calling you his child, you are free now to enter the presence of God. And so the veil was torn. We talked about that. Perhaps the greatest miracle of all we considered last week, the 
Roman soldier who had overseen the whole crucifixion repents at the end. And the word repents just means to change your mind, to have a change of heart, which is, of course, the greatest miracle of all. And the whole point of this, to change your heart because it's the changed heart where God can save you. Without a changed heart or repentance, nobody will see the Lord. The greatest miracle of all, from Ezekiel 36, looking forward to that very soldier, where it says, I will cleanse you from your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So here's this hardened soldier centurion who praises God, the text says. He starts bursting into praise to God. Truly, this is God's son. He puts his faith and trust in him. And a fulfillment there of the Old Testament saying this is the whole point. Not keeping a relationship based on religious laws, but of a a new life inside your heart, a heart change. And we saw that in the life of the centurion. Now, we pick up our text. Jesus is still upon the cross. He has committed himself, his last words on the cross, quoting Psalm 31, verse 5, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And with that, he breathes his last. And then verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, a good and an upright man who had not consented to their decision and actions. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Let's finish the chapter now with verse 55 here. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment, the very last Sabbath possible for that to occur. Now, now our Lord's burial offers some valuable uh, key insights. And in fact, the burial piece of the gospel we preach and, and by, through which we are saved, the burial piece. In other words, Paul summed it up like this to the Corinthians. Listen, he said, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And this is what has become the gospel, the kerygma, the doctrine of the, of the church of Jesus Christ. It's three-pronged, and somehow that middle prong kind of gets jumped over. You don't hear much. Why is it so important to include he died for our sins and was buried and then raised to life? Well, it's the middle part that we're going to consider because it has significance. It has theological significance. 
uh, and it also has some inspiration as we consider the one who carried out the burial. So first, some theological truths about the burial, and second, some inspirational insights about the one who carries the burial out, Joseph, the unsung hero of the Gospels. So we're going to talk about first the theology that uh, arises from the fact that Jesus was buried, and the Bible makes a point to tell you this is part of the gospel, that he was buried. Now, theology, when I say theology, of course, most of you know it means the study of God, who he is, what he's up to, his plan, his nature, his truth. So I'm asking from the burial piece in the gospel, what are we supposed to theologically learn? Now, number one, I would say Jesus' burial was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, that doesn't surprise most of you. We've already been walking through these fulfillments as they've been unrolling at us uh, so frequently. Betrayed by a friend, Old Testament prophecy all of the ones I'm about to mention, that the disciples would be scattered, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that his exact words of the mockers that were used against him while he's on the cross, the exact sentences are underlined in Psalms and prophesied, that his back would be flogged, prophesied, that he'd be offered vinegar, prophesied that no bones would be broken even though that was the tradition of the day every criminal crucified to make sure that they were dead they just broke their legs so that they couldn't support themselves and take a breath that would if they were not dead it would kill them but the bible says no bone will be broken and thus another prophetic fulfillment casting lots for clothing i mean we've just been seeing them now, Isaiah 53.9, he's assigned a grave with the rich. Another check from 700 years before. Now, <laughs> what are the odds that Jesus is going to fulfill not 10, not 20, not 30, 40, or 50, not 60, 70, 80, not 90, not 100, not 150, not 200, not 225, not 250, not 290, 300. 300, 109 direct prophecies and the remaining up to 300 indirect prophecies about Jesus' life and death, his first appearance. What are the odds? Well, I'm glad you're asking that because I have a little illustration. <clears throat> You've heard this one, but I love this because I'm a visual learner. Now, what are the odds? Well, somebody, uh, a science professor by the name of Peter Stoner, has c calculated the odds of just eight. And I've mentioned eight. Of just Jesus hitting all eight. Mind you, <laughs> some of the accusers see you as trying to fulfill all of them. How do you try to be born in the right place? How do you do that? Oh, boy, you know, oh, mom, you need to have contractions now because you're in Bethlehem, even though you don't live in Bethlehem. You're just visiting Bethlehem. Come on. He's trying so hard. I don't think so. Don't get me started, by the way. <laughs> A science professor 
Peter, see, he calculates the odds of just eight of those being fulfilled accidentally in the life of one person. He concludes that the odds are one in 10 to the 17th power. That is a number one with 17 zeros after it. That is 100 quadrillion. That is 10 times the size of our national debt. That's a big number. (laughs) Now, for all of you who like pictures like me, love this. Fill the state of Texas knee-deep with silver dollars and mark one of those dollars with a black check on it. Then you take 10,000 bulldozers and let them just kind of mix up the silver dollars really, really good for 10 years. Next, blindfold a guy and turn him loose in the sea of silver dollars. The odds that on the first draw, he would reach down and pick up the one with the black check on it is one in 10 to the 17th power. The state of Texas, knee-high in silver dollars, 300,000 Square miles. 300,000 square miles, knee-high, silver dollars. Find the right one for just eight prophecies, not 300. Men are without excuse. And one of the reasons, not just creation, that's screaming God. And it's just not our conscience that's saying there's a God. And there's just not a church and a Christian testimony that's saying God. There's prophecy. Nations are where they should be according to the Bible right now. Against all odds. They are there. The Bible is used as a history book for ancient history. And all the prophecies fulfilled. And prophecies now in the Middle East now unfolding right before our very eyes. Of course Israel can't have an ally right next door to her at the end. Because everybody comes from all over. Of course there has to be changes there. Of course they're chanting into the sea, into the sea from the Psalms. Let us wipe her into the sea. A line from the Psalms a thousand years before Jesus ever lived. I could preach this whole morning on this one point, but we need to move on. Amazing. How do you pull this one off, this prophecy? The prophecy in one breath, Isaiah 53, 8 and 9. He will die with criminals, but it be buried with the rich. Same breath. Well, everybody's like, how are you going to pull that off? Really? How? Because the condemned criminals crucified, their bodies went to the dump called Gehenna. That's where they went to. Now, how does a guy go from being a criminal, condemned criminal, to laying in a luxurious tomb? How do you do that? Well, it is a fulfillment of prophecy. So my second theological point is Jesus' burial with the rich signifies that his exaltation has begun. Now, excuse my voice, I'm still getting over it. Here's what I mean by that. Folks... Jesus' days of suffering servant are over at 2.59. At 3 o'clock, 
when he breathes his last, he's started a trip now back to, quote, the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. Gone are the days of swaddling clothes and seamless uh, garments. Now, richness, a tomb for rich people where kings would be buried, where nobody else had ever laid a body. Not in a mass grave, but to his own luxurious, fit for a king. Why? Because he is a king. That's what the sign said in three different languages above him. Not only is he the king of the Jews, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. So it makes sense. He's on his way to be exalted. Remember Philippians 2. Jesus was in very nature God. He didn't consider that something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even unto death, and that on a cross. Now listen to the part I'm getting to. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The days of poverty and building things to to make a living and suffering and humility are over, and the exaltation has begun, and it starts with being laid in a rich man's tomb because he is rich and he is a king. There'll be a change of clothes now. No more blood-stained seamless robe, but kingly robes. A changing crowns. Oh, no more crown of thorns, but kingly crowns upon his head. There'll be a change of tone. From a voice the Bible says you did not see or hear, rather, in the city square, to a voice the sound of a roar of many waters. Oh, there's a change now. We're leaving suffering servant. We're leaving. We're leaving the lamb who laid down his life, baby Jesus meek and mild. And we're going to the lion the tribe of Judah. I hope nobody's looking for meek and mild Jesus anymore because he's been raised to his rightful place. And so the exaltation has begun. And really, finally, about this first point, Jesus' burial will form a key part of the New Testament understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Now, the really... Jesus dies for our sins, is buried, and is raised again. Now, we often get the part that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, but we don't understand our part in all of that. We share in that, theologically, spiritually, in a figurative sense. Listen, I'll explain to what I, what I mean. People were getting back in Rome, oh, Jesus paid for all my sins, therefore I just get a free pass, and I live however I want. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning that the grace may increase? By no means. We who have, listen, died to sin, how can we live it in any longer? Or don't you know 
that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. Do you understand what the Bible's getting at? That we in some mystical spiritual way as believers are united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. How clear is that with baptism coming up? When a Christian becomes linked to the Lord and saved, the, the sign that we give is called baptism. We stand in front of everybody and we say, the old me has died. We fall over, we're dead. We're buried by the water. And we are raised up to a new life. That is the sign by which the world knows us and by which we identify ourselves. We are a new thing, a new birth, a new creation. The old person or the nature, even though if, let's say, you're a church kid, you don't have it a history, the old, who are you talking about? You know exactly who I'm talking about. That part of us that wants to do its own thing. Whether you've been in check, whether that side of you's been checked in check all your life or not, that's the old person that needs to be what? Buried, disappeared, disconnected. That's why the piece of burial is important. There is no resurrection without death and burial. That's the point. And people think, and they call it universalism, where Jesus died for everybody, therefore everybody's going to heaven. Now, I did a memorial service uh, Thursday. A sweet girl who is with the Lord. Somebody said, in my hearing, during the comments, One day, we're all going to be with Robin. And I said out loud, Lord willing. Because the idea is Jesus died, everybody dies, we've got a free pass, everybody goes beyond to glory. Wrong, not biblical. The only people who will see Robin again are those who have been baptized, not by water, but connected to Jesus' death, burial, Then the resurrection, it's death, burial, resurrection. That is the order, that's the only order heaven knows of how to get somebody raised to a new life and living forever. There's no other way. Unless you go down and are covered, you do not have a real biblical resurrection. You better have something covered. You better be able to say, well, I've left this, that, and the other thing. My seeking pleasure, my sinful will, my gossiping tongue. And it's not like the old person is trying to be good. It's what comes up out of the water is a new thing. People, that never got into my head. People telling me all the time about the Lord when I was 18, 19 years old. And I'd say, you don't understand. I don't like your music. I don't like your values. I don't like your churches. I would never fit in there. And I said those very words, and it never got into my head. You will die 
this person talking to us. You will die and disappear and be covered. And up will come a new thing. Not the old guy trying to like music and do the right thing and, oh, don't say that. Make your list of ten things that you need to do and when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, please. Good luck, because you're not going to heaven with that. You need to have a, figuratively, a death, a covering, a goodbye, a disappearing. When Eustace, that snotty-nosed punk in Voyager of the Dawn Treader, the guy you just hate, whining with that British accent... (laughs) Oh, you just want to punch him out and then tell him about the love of God. But he turns into a dragon because that's the kind of guy he is. It's all about greed. But then Aslan gets a hold of him and you see a tear fall from his eye. And that's, you know, all it takes is a change of heart and plunged under the water, covered, buried, dead, gone. Up comes New life. We don't hear that snotty nose punk anymore. Now, you might have a little outburst occasionally here and there, but that guy is dead and gone. You do not have new life as a Christian. Do not put your hope on heaven if you have not experienced the new birth. Jesus said there's only one way to get to heaven you must be born again. Period. Period. You can't do good. Dead people can't do good things. Dead people can't do anything. So there's a new life, a new person. Remember my favorite story about my dad. My dad became a Christian. He's telling me all about the Lord. You know, I was mocking him, saying, Dad, please, you're a Jew. You cannot be a Christian. This is against your religion. This is wrong. And I'm running away from him and doing my thing. He is a Bible scholar. And he would read hours and hours and hours. It's all I ever saw him do. And it made no sense to me. But one thing hit me like a ton of bricks. And I told you this before. We're out driving in the car. And we pass a kid on a bicycle. A little kid. And my dad waved at the kid. And I I did a double take, and I just thought, who are you, and what have you done with my father? (laughs) This, I'm sorry, Dad, mean, gruff, scam artist from Brooklyn. He hated kids. He hated kids. (laughs) And we're driving along, and this cute little kid, and I see my dad not even stop to think. He waves to him. And I said, do you know him? And he goes, no, that was a cute little kid. <laughs> what? <laughs> that impacted me more than anything he ever said to me about the scriptures. Because what I saw my dad not trying to be something else, he was becoming something else supernaturally. He wasn't trying to be a kinder, gentler person. He was becoming something he wasn't before. And I knew something was up. I knew something was up, so I moved out to get away from him. (laughs) But God lives in the city, too. Unbelievable. 
Secondly, and my final point, now that we've considered some theological applications of being buried with the Lord, now let's consider this. Joseph, an unassuming hero, some inspirational thoughts, all right? It's very wonderful because the very thing I'm talking about, you're going to see lived out by this unassuming hero, Joseph of Arimathea, who you don't find anywhere else in all of the scriptures. He's mentioned by all four gospel writers, but this isn't the only context you ever hear about this guy. So we're going to talk about him. Who is he? But that, that new life that, that, that made my father somebody he wasn't before is making Joseph, shy, quiet guy, into a hero. The very point I'm making. Well, let's consider his life. Number one, Matthew 27 says he was wealthy. And it's got a lot of stuff working against him. Jesus said, you know, it's tough for rich people. He said, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich guy to enter heaven because they have false security. Money's in the bank. Everything's cool. I've got everything charted. I've got no pressing issue. I'm not in any desperate need. And so, you know, they don't think about God until some of that is juggled away from them. Secondly, he was powerful. Your text says he was a prominent member of the prestigious 70-member Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court that ran the place under the auspices, of course, of Rome. Now, between his unlimited resources and his high position on the Supreme Court, he was well-known and well-established. Now, the Bible also says he's a good guy. Instead of being corrupted by his fame and fortune, we can see he's a man of character. He's got integrity. And when you see the Bible call anybody righteous, it's always code for being right with God through faith. Because the Bible says over and over again, no, there's not one righteous, no, not one. But when the Bible calls somebody a righteous person, it means that person has been set right with God. Just the theological uh, thought I throw in there for you. And so he's a good guy. He's rich. He's on the court. He's got a lot of pull, but he's got a problem. The problem is John 19. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. All right, folks, he's on the Sanhedrin. He's either a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe. The Sadducees and the Pharisees have already decided, John chapter 9, whoever put their faith in Christ would be excommunicated. When you're excommunicated in a little village, or Jerusalem for that matter, nobody will do business with you. Your friends and family will snub you. You lose everything. You are shunned. You're destroyed. It's killing you without a gun. And without a weapon to excommunicate you. So in John 9, when Jesus heals the blind guy, the blind guy's hauled in and said, we want to talk to your mom and dad. The mom and dad are hauled into court. Was, is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. How did it happen? Uh, ask him. He's of age. And it says they feared because the, the Jews had said, anybody confesses Jesus as Christ, you're out. 
So consider Joseph of Arimathea, his colleagues, his money, his wealth, his family, his wife, his kids. It's just him and Nick. That's it. 68 crazed, vain-popping, greedy, self-righteous, power-hungry Pharisees and Sadducees and two guys. Nick at night. Sorry. (laughs) He goes in John 3 at night. I didn't even mean that. (laughs) He goes at night. Whispering around. You know, he's got a problem. Now, for a couple of years, Nick and Joe, they made it work. They were the secret believer squad. All right? So they talked in hushed tones. And so when everybody, oh, by the way, they managed not to be at the meeting where everybody condemns Jesus. Because Mark tells us that everybody was in agreement. They were not there. So they managed to skip the right meetings. They managed to roll their eyes at the right moment, but not say anything. They managed to slip a few coins here and there into the disciples' pockets in passing, like in a secret handshake. You know, they were true secret disciples, for they were afraid. They had a lot on the line. It wasn't about losing a minimum wage job or having your friends snub you. It was about losing everything. And when you have a lot of stuff... There's more on the line. You feel it more. So our hearts go out to them. He's a good guy, but he's got a problem. He's a secret Christian. And now comes a stirring. It's time to take a stand. That irrepressible power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts starts to flow. And something happens. And he sees, along with Nicodemus, they get this. And they realize he's going to have to be buried somewhere. Maybe they check out the Isaiah scroll. And they're reading along. Executed with criminals. Check. Next breath. Buried with the rich. And Nicodemus looks in candlelight at his friend Joseph. And he says, Joseph, that's you. That's us. We're going to provide that. So where else is he going to go? He's going to go to the, the dump, the son of God. He's going to the dump if they don't do something about it. Who else is going to do something? Peter, he's hiding under the bed. <laughs> James and John, they're all gone. John is there to his credit. Everybody's poor. They don't have any money. They don't have any power. And he realizes, I was born for this. This is my moment. I may have lived for two years as a secret believer, but God needs me, and God's honor is more important than what I stand to lose right now. Yes, I'm shy. Yes, I got a a wife and kids I want to protect. Yes, I have a reputation. Yes, this is going to get all over the place. But, you know, God's honor before my own, God's truth before my own opinion, God's will over my preference. Now it's not about what he has to lose, but what the Lord has to gain. So he says, I'm going. And and one of the gospel writers says, he summons his courage. And he says, Nick, pray for me. I'm going to the palace. 
He walks to the palace. The guards let him in because of who he is and his wealth and his prestige. The gate swings open and they call Pilate from his dinner table where he's shoving food into his face and he comes out chewing his dinner. What do you want again? I'm irritated, exhausted, and in a condescending tone, what? And he says, with your permission, sir, I'd like to take Jesus' body down, care for it, and lay it to rest in my own tomb. Pilate's eyes, big. What is his first thought? You're one of them. You're one of them. Hmm. Everybody in the palace, he's one of them. Everybody in the crowd, once he gets the ladder, tenderly, gently removing the nails, carrying Jesus, wrapping his body, bringing it to his own tomb with his own aloes and myrrhs, a hundred pounds with Nicodemus they bring. No more hiding. The streets know, the colleagues know, it's gotten back to the council. Pilate knows, everybody knows, and that's the way it always will be. It must be. Everybody has to know. There's no way to mingle your life carrying the dead body of Jesus, which we still figuratively do, according to Paul. Listen to this. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Paul is saying there's some awkwardness to being a Christian. There's a cost. There's an association with the shame and rejection and the inconvenience and the persecution that killed the Son of God. And Joseph is doing what we all do, in a sense. Right downtown Main Street, carrying the body in an awkward way, sharing the shame. Oh, one of them. Oh, you belong to him. Oh, you're one of those gospel guys. Oh, praise Jesus. And he gets a little blood. How could you not? It's messy. It's inconvenient. It's costly. There's no more hiding. Why you got blood on you? That's carrying the Lord. What do we have on us? Oh, I got a bumper sticker. I hope it goes a little deeper than your bumper sticker. I hope that you are carrying this intimate thing where, where there's no question now, friends, the stigma's done. Do you know how many people said, hey, Joseph of Arimathea, did you notice he misses a lot of meetings? You think he's one of them? No, no, he's not one of them. You think he's one of them? Everybody had the question. You know, I saw him bow his head the other day. Was he scratching his eyebrow or was he really praying over a meal? Oh, none of that. It's all gone. They all know. The demons know now. The angels know. God the Father knows. Mary Magdalene knows. Peter knows. Everybody knows. No question anymore. At his memorial service, nobody's going like this. We hope he knew the Lord. No, everybody knows. Joseph, he's a hero. He's one of us. He went up on that cross and pulled our 
Lord and Savior down. You imagine Jesus when he sees him, when he saw him. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. After all of that beating and torture, after being mishandled and bruised and battered and broken and spat upon, 301, it's our time. He's in our hands now. Gentle and loving and kind. And the best for him. And he says, thank you. It's a reward for that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the privilege of carrying your body around having heads wag and tongues wag as well at us. Help us to remember we also carry the life with great praise and peace and joy and love and answer to prayer and inheritance and hope and optimism. We carry both. Let us carry them both well and in balance and not try to do away with one or the other, but accept the lot that you've given us to be united with you in your death, burial, and glorious resurrection. We look forward to talking about that next time, Lord. In the meantime, keep these truths close to our hearts because in them is the essence of life. Christ's name, amen. Um, secret Christians. Who likes to be mocked? Who likes to be thought of as less than? Marginalized? Nobody. I hate it. That first second, and then I love it. But that first few moments are terrible. Barb had surgery a couple months ago, and we're leaving the hospital room. Someone had to carry the purse. So I don't mind. It was either this time or the last time. I'm carrying the purse. And my wife likes purses. They're big. (laughs) They scream, purse! (laughs) And I'm trying to show I am not carrying this purse. I am carrying a purse, but I'm not. I'm with somebody. But you can't always do that. And then I started thinking, who cares? My wife just had surgery. I love my wife. I don't mind carrying a purse. People don't get the right idea. Bye-bye. Your words give you away. Your big Bible you carry or you have it in your locker. Come on. It's for the love of Christ who laid down his life for you. You can lay down your life. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, your moment is coming. Don't despair. 
you're going to see the door open and you're going to know, I was born for this. This is my moment and I'm going to step out and your life will never be the same. Do not despair. God loves you. God knows your struggle. And he's going to make a way and you're going to shine. You're going to shine bigger and brighter than you ever hoped or dreamed just by believing and not giving up. God has a place for you. You matter. You come out a little bit from the shadows and you watch what he's going to do. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love everyone, the quiet ones, the shy ones, the fearful ones, the introverted ones. We're not second class, Lord. You have a day for us, a healing day, a day when your spirit falls upon us and we do more than, than we could do without you. Change us, Lord, and help us to remember when we're reproached in the name or for the name of the Lord, it's, an, it's not an insult but a praise and something to be really glad for. For you bore our reproach gladly. So, Father, encourage our hearts today. Use this truth. Keep it close to our hearts. We'll praise you and walk with this truth. Put it into practice. Show us ways. In Christ's name, amen.